I'm so excited about this case that we're doing today. That makes one of us. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I don't do a lot of serial killers normally because honestly... Who needs them? They're not interesting to me, but we are doing a serial killer today. Oh, good. I'm so glad that we're doing that tonight of all nights. Aren't you you so excited? Oh, it's going to be great. Okay. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real life creeps from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mo Gap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. So, should we just should we just jump into this? <laughs> I guess head first. <laughs> We're jumping in head first to the case today cuz I just can't. Well, no, we got to talk about the Patreon. The people know about the Patreon. If they don't, we've got a Patreon and if you go over there to our Patreon. Go over there. How do they get there? How do they could, find it? You can go to patreoncom creepers. And you will find that we have three levels available for you if you would like some extra bonus content in your life from MoGab and I. So we've got our $5 level, and that will get you, it gets you a bonus episode. It gets you a shout out on the podcast if you fill out the form, which I reposted for all my Patreon people. (laughs) Then if you jump up $2, you get the mini creeps, which we just recorded an AMA. We're going to do a great mini creep next week that I'm excited about. No spoilers. All right, it's yeah, going to be on the on the betrayal of Anne Frank. It's going to be great. <gasps> oh, the diary of <laughs> Anne Frank. What a... Mm. I know. I'm so excited to get into that. And then uh, you also get a card that we sign with our little autographs, and it comes with a sticker in the mail, wax sealed by MoGab herself. I need to get on that. And then you can jump up to the $10 level where you can get 20% off of merch, and we now have all of our episodes ad-free. That's exciting. Yes, it is exciting. So head over to patreon.com slash truecrimecreepers if you would like to support the podcast, just want some extra bonus content, we would so appreciate it. And that's all I'm going to say about our Patreon. That's it. That's it. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. All right. Let's go. Big thanks once again to People Magazine Investigates for their episode on this case, which, by the way, so the last case that we did, which... Yeah, tell them, tell them, tell them. <laughs> I think it was the bonus episode that we did, right? It was, yeah. The, was, so the bonus yeah. episode that we did on the Patreon was the murders of Josh Ford and Jeannie Crutchley. And I had seen an episode of People Magazine Investigates about it. It was very thorough. I was very impressed with this episode. <laughs> but it's on Discovery Plus. I watched it on Discovery Plus, And I totally forgot that I've been using MoGab's Discovery Plus account. I did double check. <laughs> it is her account. I got confused because I'm the only name on there. When I log in, I just hit Kristen. And uh, and it takes me in. You don't have That's your own That's pretty funny. Profile. I was using your Hulu just this evening. <laughs> Yes, but if you notice, you have your own profile on Hulu, so I'm constantly reminded that you're scamming that. <laughs> what? You have your own on this, though. It doesn't say but Kristen. you. But you don't. You don't oh. have your own profile. So I forget I did, that. Though, at one point, I was definitely watching bonus 90 Day Fiance content. 
Listen, it's been my two-year anniversary, I think, since I've watched 90 Day Fiance. I'm, I, maybe not, but it was You haven't watched it time. since you started the podcast? I, I don't really think I have. I, I think, think I like, really watched have. a lot of it during COVID and then... And then stopped. Yeah, I should get back on that. You weren't sure watching Russell Tiger King like the rest of us, I know, so... I did watch that. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah, You could have been watching Greek, but okay. You could have been I'm watching, watching that right now. You could have been watching listen, Veronica Mars. <laughs> I do. I did watch Tiger King because I'll never forget. Also, during COVID was when I let Russell go to the grocery store, which he's lost all grocery shopping privileges. <laughs> if you come to our house, you'll see that there is a receipt that's still attached to the refrigerator. I hung up there. My man spent $250 at the grocery store. We don't have kids. We also subscribe to a meal service. So there's no reason that a grocery trip... He like got $12 olive oil and I absolutely lost my shit. And I just remember in the car looking over him and being like, I'm never going to financially recover from this, which is the line from Tiger King. We say that a lot in our house. So I will never financially recover from this. <laughs> $12 olive oil. You know, I have like a he's lot. Gore- like he's Chef Ramsay in here. I have a like, lot of questions no. about that fire in Tiger King too. Because that fire burned up all of the footage that they had been using. So let me ask you, where did the footage from the documentary come from? Wait, what? It, the fire. They had, yeah. they, he had this documentary guy like filming him around. That's why they had all this footage from before. And they said that it burned up like it ruined the, the director. Like he said that it all burned up. And I said, then where did all this uh, footage come from? Somebody can answer that question for me. I would like to know. Also, RIP those crocodiles. It still makes me so sad. Oh. I know. I to go there. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Okay, so we should cover that as a mini creep, because that is a true crime, but I actually <laughs> that is a true crime for sure. I discovered this show, People Magazine Investigates, while researching the our bonus episode case, and I went back to it, and I found an episode on this case, which was also very helpful, uh, as well as a smattering of other articles that I will send smattering. to you. Smattering. Mm-hmm. All right. I uh, 
I don't know what I'm going to call this yet. So I'm just going to jump on into it. All right. Oh, good. It was the morning of February 22nd, 2001. Jennifer DeSisto was returning home to her bungalow in Hollywood, California, after spending the night with her boyfriend. What's a Hollywood bungalow exactly? Like, what should I be picturing here? Uh, the cutest house you've ever seen, basically. Okay. From the outside. Okay. Probably like 19, like 50s vibe kind of house, style house. Okay. All right. Like um, separate rooms for everything, that kind of thing. Big picture window on the front. Yeah. Really cute house. But Jen was just not loving it at this house. The house made her uncomfortable. It just didn't really have a good vibe. She'd tried to come home the night before, actually, around 10 o'clock, but she'd forgotten her keys in her boyfriend's car, so she'd knocked on the door for a while, hoping that her roommate, Ashley Ellerin, would open the door for her. The lights were on, and Ashley's BMW was parked in front of the house, but she never came to the door. Jen figured that Ashley had gone out and left the lights on, which she did that sometimes, so Jen left and spent the night at her boyfriend's house. The next morning, when she came home with her keys in hand, she walked to the front doors of the bungalow. And when you walk in to the left, like to the left, there's a living room. And then on the other side of the living room is another doorway that has like uh, like three stairs that go up to a little landing that leads to a bathroom. And on that landing, she sees her roommate, Ashley, lying in front of the bathroom covered in what she assumed was red paint. I'm never assuming that it's red paint. (laughs) I think you are assuming it's red paint because the alternative is not possible in your mind until you're faced with it. That's why there's a big joke in the true crime community that it's never a mannequin because every time somebody finds a body like outside, every time their first reaction is, I thought it was just a mannequin. And it's never a man. Like people are not throwing mannequins away that often. They're not dumping mannequins. And uh, like who just has mannequins? But I know? think your first thought is not like, oh, it's got to be fake. That can't be a real human person. Yeah. And so That's Jen fair. just thought this was a really bad joke. But when she got closer, she realized that Ashley's face was blue and she was dead, oh, no. brutally murdered. Jen says a sense of trauma came over her. She was horrified at what she'd seen, but also terrified that the person who'd done this was still in the house. So she ran out of the house and went to her car and like got in her car and called 911 to report the murder. (sighs) The first detective on the scene was Los Angeles Police Department homicide detective Tom Small, who worked out of the Hollywood division. He walked into the bungalow and he first noticed that the house was undergoing some renovations. There was a lot of like, you know, home renovation stuff going on. Yeah. And then he saw Ashley's body lying in front of the bathroom. She had been stabbed repeatedly. Her throat had been gashed so severely it had practically decapitated her. (gasps) He noticed that there was a hairdryer left out in the bathroom. The bath mat was still damp and she had a nice outfit all set out. So his conclusion was that she'd been killed getting ready to go out like for a date or something. Yeah. This feels very Amanda Noxie. Ashley's body indicated that she'd fought back like crazy. There were defensive wounds all over her hands, her arms, her legs. But there was also something weird that Detective Small noticed. It looked like her hand had been posed with her three fingers like folded in and her index finger pointing down like towards her crotch. Detective Small 
thought that she'd been posed that way purposefully and knew that if she had been posed, it meant that whoever had done this had wanted them to find her in this specific way. Yeah. Looking around the house, it was clear right away that this was not some sort of robbery gone wrong. She was wearing diamond studs in her ears and a gold necklace, and there was like $300 in cash left out on the sink. Also, Ashley took her security seriously. Detective Small described her house as Fort Knox. Every door and window was securely barred, and there was no evidence of forced entry. Her roommate, Jen, told detectives that she had used her key to get in the front door, so it had been locked. Ashley always checked to make sure the front and back doors were locked, especially when she was home alone. Yeah. And it looked like the only way that someone could have gotten in was if she had let them in or if they had a key. And Jen said the only person she knew of that had a key to the house was their friend, Justin Peterson. He was a mutual friend of Jen and Ashley's. He was the person that had introduced them, actually. And I believe that Jen had replaced him as Ashley's roommate, but he might have also been living in the house at the time. I'm not 100% clear on that. Either way, it wasn't weird that he'd have a key. Like, he was friends with all of them. I really thought you were going to say Justin Bieber when you said <laughs> Justin Bieber's because, I mean, we are in Hollywood after all. What Detective Small didn't see at the scene was evidence. Anything to point him towards the killer. Anything to nudge him in one direction or the other. There was just nothing there. Criminalists came out and found no fingerprints, but there was DNA and blood evidence all over the place. Ashley How definitely- are there no fingerprints? I never understand this. I, there's either I just thousands or there's like none. I'm going to guess that there was just so many because we'll talk about it in a little bit. Ashley did like to have parties and stuff at her house and she'd had one recently where there was like 40 or 50 people there. So I'm guessing that so there was too many fingerprints. Like there So was it's more just, like they couldn't. OK, not just like there are none. Yeah. Like he wiped down the entire house. Yeah. They were hoping that because Ashley had clearly fought back so hard that maybe some of the blood evidence at the scene might be the killers. So while Detective Small waited for the forensics team to process the scene and hopefully give him a lead, he started talking to people that knew Ashley and just learning more about her. Ashley Ellerin was 22 years old when she was murdered. She'd grown up in Somerset County, New Jersey, and then her family had moved to Los Altos, California, which is in Northern California, like up near San Francisco. Ashley was a very confident, bubbly, charismatic person. She never had a hard time fitting in or making friends. In high school, she started getting into art and fashion, and after she graduated, she moved to L.A. and enrolled in classes at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. Oh, like from the hills. Like from the FIDM. Yeah. Her family, which is her dad, Mike, her mom, Cynthia, and her little brother, Seth, they all still lived in Los Altos. But Ashley's move to L.A. did not stop them from being the close family unit they'd always been. They were all really good about staying in touch, and they were very close. Ashley and her mom even wore matching gold horseshoe necklaces, and Ashley would, like, rub it throughout the day and feel like she was getting good luck from her mom. Hmm. Officers showed up at Mike and Cynthia Ellerin's house in Los Altos at 11.15 that morning to tell them that Ashley had been killed. And Cynthia said she fell to her knees and just started crawling around her bedroom screaming. And her dad, Mike, said he'll never stop hearing that scream. Uh -uh. Ashley had been in L.A. about four years at this point. She'd recently moved into that little bungalow in Hollywood. 
And she loved it because it brought her closer to like the Hollywood nightlife, which was definitely her scene at the time. She was just like living life and having fun. She loved throwing parties at the bungalow. And these parties would get pretty big. Like I said, like 40 to 50 of her closest friends. Now you already know who I'm picturing. Feel the rain on your skin. <laughs> okay, well, you know that the, you know, my new favorite TikToker. No. Spencer Pratt. Stop. He, he's oh, he's everybody's new favorite TikToker. Everybody's like, oh, my God. Were you not the villain? He's spilling all the tea. And it is so good. And he's hilarious. Is he like not crazy? No, he is not crazy. No. I mean, he might be a little no, crazy. I, he's great. I don't know if I could. I don't. You got to follow him. You got to follow him. What's he spilling the tea he's about? Amazing. Uh, apparently, uh, Phoebe from Friends was a real bitch to him at one point. He's talking about Audrina. He's talking about LC. He's talking about not his sister Stephanie. I've been wanting to send you so many TikToks, but I'm like, I would just send them all. The shade he threw at his sister was unbelievably amazing. <laughs> Without even ever mentioning her name. (laughs) I can't wait. Uh, It's great. Ashley had a really wide social circle, and she would hang out a lot at Chateau Marmont, which is a hotel on Sunset Boulevard. It's a really exclusive celebrity hangout. How'd she get in there? Ashley was young and single and very beautiful, living where the celebrities live. So she actually ended up dating quite a few of them including Jeremy Sisto, who played Elton in Clueless, a movie you've never seen. Uh, Denny Kirkwood, who was Billy Prince in Never Been Kissed. Have you seen Never Been Kissed? Yeah, but I I don't remember the character names. Ah. And Vin Diesel. What? About a year year before he started filming for The Fast and the Furious. Yes. But the night before she was found murdered, she'd had plans to go out with a young 23-year-old Ashton Kutcher. No way. Yeah. How how is that happening? <laughs> like, does Ashton Kutcher and Vin Diesel get questioned in this? Like Ashton was a witness at the trial. Oh, what? Yeah. How have I never heard of this? Like, was this not I'd never funny. heard of it either. <laughs> She'd met oh Ashton goodness. at a New Year's party like a few months before. And this is at the time when he's starring in that 70s show and Dude, Where's My Car had just been released like a few weeks before New Year's. And he was just on the verge of like catapulting to his superstar status. But he wasn't like quite there yet. They'd gone on like maybe a couple of dates before, but they were still very casual. They were both dating other people as well. So detectives discovered that the night that Ashley was murdered, she had a date planned with Ashton Kutcher. So they go talk to Ashton Kutcher because they're like, did he do this? Did he murder this girl? But they didn't have to go find him because the day after Ashley's body had been discovered, Ashton came to them and he was freaking out. One of the first things he said to them was, my fingerprints are on the door. Ashton said that he'd been rehearsing for that 70s show that day and he'd called her from the set to ask her if she wanted to go to this Grammys after party with him that night. And she'd said yes, even though she was having a pretty busy day that day. Because you don't turn down that invite. (laughs) Right, no. Her dad, Mike Ellerin, had actually flown down to L.A. to help with some renovation projects at her house, and she had to take him to the airport around 5 that night. Can you imagine? So he, like, spent the day with her that day, her dad. No, I cannot. Ashton called Ashley again around 8 o'clock from a friend's house after she dropped her dad off to confirm plans. She said she was just getting out of the shower, and he said he'd pick her up around 10 or 10.15, and she agreed, and that was the last time he'd spoken with her. 
He'd been running late to pick her up and he didn't end up getting to her house until around 1045, which means he'd like just missed Jen coming home and realizing she left her keys at her boyfriend's house and also leaving. But okay, so you just show up to your house and you're like, oh, I got to get my key out of my purse. You're digging in your purse. You look up and Ashton Kutcher's at your front door. (laughs) Now I understand. Well, I think he'd like come to parties that are like they'd all kind of hung out. They said that like her friends that were interviewed were like, when you live there, it's just like it's not a big deal because they all live there. And so, you know, I just read that about Nashville somewhere. Someone's talking about Nashville. Yeah, it's just like normal for them. It's very exciting for us. But (laughs) (laughs) Ashen had tried calling several times when he realized that he was running late, but he never got a hold of her. And since it was 2001, he figured it was just really bad phone service. He said he didn't leave a message every time he called because he was trying to take her on a date and he didn't want to seem too eager. (laughs) Cute. But when he got to her house, he knocked several times, but there was no answer. He peeked into the window, like, off the side of the patio to see if he could tell if she was home. But all he saw was a large red stain on the carpet that he figured was a wine stain from one of her large parties. He knew she'd just thrown one a few days before, so it didn't seem weird to him. Oh, it seems a little sad. I'm just kidding. I'm sure this doesn't end with Ashton Kutcher murdering her, but. He tried knocking again, and when she still didn't answer, he assumed that she was mad that he'd been running late and that she'd left. So he went on about his night. So detectives started canvassing the neighborhood, and they soon find someone that saw something weird that night. Across the street from Ashley's house was a dog park, and this neighbor told detectives that the night of Ashley's murder, he was walking his dog, and he's about to enter the dog park when he heard a high shriek. The dog alerted and looked at the house at Ashley's house, and it's like focused on her house. It will not stop staring at it. So the neighbor started trying to get the dog to move, and then he heard a scream. (gasps) He didn't see anything, but the sounds unnerved him, so he left, and he said all this happened around 8.30 p.m. That gave Ashton Kutcher an alibi. He'd been at his friend's house at 8.30, so he was ruled out as a suspect. Spoiler, Ashton Kutcher did not do it. Yeah. But the but the stain though would have liked a little more One- follow up. <laughs> I know, but like once again, you're just not thinking that it's that. Yeah, I guess I am because I've listened to a hundred episodes like this. I know. I'd probably jumped into my mind too, and probably like a lot of our listeners are like, I would totally think that that was that, and I would call the police. And good but on you. Don't know you. it until. Yeah, and I hope to God never to be in that situation. The autopsy report on Ashley came back. The coroner counted 47 stab wounds. (gasps) Some were so deep, they went almost all the way through her, which meant that the person must have been pretty strong, probably a pretty big guy. The coroner also noticed that the stab wounds went in from left to right, which could mean that the killer was left-handed. So they're looking for a big, strong, left-handed man. And they go and talk to Mark Durbin, who was her property manager. He was an aspiring actor who'd been in several commercials. He'd tried to be a weatherman at one point. Mark (laughs) told them that he'd been at her bungalow that night. He'd gone over there around 7 to fix a ceiling fan. And he said he was gone by like 8.15, which was just like minutes before the screams from her house were heard. Detective Small is certain that Mark Durbin is their guy, but he he can't prove it just yet. He's really hoping that something will come back from forensics that can link Mark to this crime. 
but it will be months before that comes back from the lab. So Detective Small uh, starts talking to Ashley's friends, and they give him another suspect. They tell him about this strange guy that had stood outside her house while Ashley and a friend changed a tire. He didn't have a dog, but he was in the dog park. He said his name was Mike, and he offered to help them change the tire, but he had his attention solidly on Ashley. He said he was a furnace and air conditioning repairman, so Ashley started calling him Mike the Furnace Man. They'd been having heater problems at the house, and they'd had him come in and look at the heater. After the tire? Like, same or same? Yeah, I think, like, after the tire. And he just started, like, showing up at their home and sometimes just standing outside. But sometimes if she was having a party, he'd, like, come up to the front porch and would, like, look in the windows at the party. People inside would see him doing this. And then he'd just, like, come inside the house. But he wouldn't talk to anyone. He wouldn't engage with the party at all. He would just, like, watch Ashley. Survey the scene. Okay. The friends told Detective Small that Mike the Furnace Man would brag about really weird things. He'd tell Ashley that he was this professional boxer, and it turned out he did have a short career as an amateur boxer several years ago, but he was never, like, a professional. And he would also brag to Ashley about how he was about to get a multi-million dollar settlement because of a truck accident that had happened down the street. Okay, a little bit weird, dude. Yeah. There was one night where Justin, who was living at the house at this time, I'm not sure about when the murder happened. The timeline there was hard for me to put together, but he had lived there at some point. Anyway, he saw Mike the Furnace Man sitting in his car outside of Ashley's house with the engine running, just looking at the house. And this was like, oh my God, I'm so freaked out. This was like at two or three in the morning. Oh, good. He thought it was really weird, and Mike dropped by the house for a visit the next day. So Justin was like, hey, what were you doing sitting outside our house in the middle of the night? And then Mike started going on about how he couldn't go home the night before because the FBI was waiting for him at his house to collect DNA samples for some murder in Chicago, where he was from. What? Yeah. Okay, and Justin Bieber didn't think that was weird. Right. So he asked him what he had to hide. No, I think Justin Bieber thought this was very weird. And by Justin Bieber, we, of course, mean Justin Peterson, their roommate, not Justin Bieber, the famous. Yeah, well, famous lizard man, according to Sherry Schreiner. (laughs) (laughs) Justin asked him what he had to hide. Like, why won't you go home? You obviously had nothing to do with this murder in Chicago, right? So what do you have to hide? So Mike put his leg up on the couch and then pulled out a knife that was strapped to his ankle. And so Justin then basically like kicked him out of the house. But Ashley and everyone else just brushed this off. And then called 911 or no? Well, no, because Ashley and everyone else just brushed this off as Mike the Furnace Man telling another wild story, like how he'd been a professional boxer and was going to get a multi-million dollar settlement. Like just another story. Yeah. But that story about the multi-million dollar settlement, it gave Detective Small something to go on to find who this guy was. So he started running every single traffic-related incident in that area to see if there really was some accident involving some guy named Mike. But there was no lawsuit at all with a guy named Mike. And the closest thing he found was an incident where a guy named Michael filed a report saying that someone almost hit his pit bull. The owner of the pit bull was named Michael Thomas Gargiulo, and he lived a couple houses down from Ashley. Uh, So Detective Small shows Ashley's friends Michael's ID photo, 
And they immediately say, yep, that's Mike the Furnace Man. Oh. But Mike the Furnace Man was now nowhere to be seen. Detective Small went to his apartment, but he wasn't there. His car was gone, and the landlord had no idea where he was. He'd taken off right after the murder. They searched for four months, and they got nowhere. Meanwhile, in these four months, the forensics report from the scene came back with nada for Detective Small. Nothing. All the blood in the house had come from Ashley. And so Detective Small was really pissed. Like, he'd really... So does that rule out the first guy? Who was the first guy again? Mark Durbin. It doesn't rule anybody out because there was... It just means that none of the blood was theirs or the killer's. He really thought he had Mark Durbin nailed for this, but now he has a really bad feeling about this Michael Gargiulo character. Yeah, he's sus. Yes. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. And then, a detective from Chicago called, looking for help in a cold case there. And the detective said he was looking for a guy named Mike Gargiulo. And Detective Small is like, what a coincidence, me too. And like, (gasps) me too. And like, truly, this was a total coincidence that they happened to call at the exact same time that he was looking for the same person. Detective Small called it a stroke of luck. And this detective tells him all about this case from 1993 when 18-year-old Trisha Picaccio was found murdered. That was like almost 10 years ago. 10 years before. This was 2001, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. This was seven years. Yep. Eight years. Trisha Picaccio came from a blue-collar family in Glenville, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, with a really bright future ahead of her. She was just 18 years old. She was a boy-crazy, recent high school graduate on her way to Purdue University to study engineering and environmental issues with a full scholarship because those existed in 1993. I know. (laughs) And then she was murdered on August 13th, 1993. 
It was a Friday night, and Trisha had gone to a scavenger hunt party with her friends, which sounds so fun. Oh, I remember doing those for, like, sleepovers. I forgot about that. I know. And this was, like, a final night for all of them to be together before they all kind of spread out and, and all went off to college. After the scavenger hunt, they'd gone to dinner at a restaurant, and then Trisha got home sometime between 1 and 1.30 in the morning. She got all the way to the back door of her parents' house, her key in her hand, but she never made it inside. (gasps) The next morning, her father, Rick, woke up and he had his cup of coffee and he went outside to go out to his van. And as soon as he opened the back door, he saw two little tennis shoes sticking up by the side door. And when he saw that it was his daughter, Trisha, lying there, he dropped his coffee cup. He ran to her. He tried to revive her. Trisha's brother, Doug, was woken by Rick's blood-curdling screams and then screams to call 911. And Doug says he still has nightmares about what he saw that day. Ray Salahovich was the first officer to to arrive on the scene, and he saw a lot of blood on Trisha's shirt and guessed that she'd been stabbed multiple times. It would turn out to be 12 stab wounds. And then Salahovich heard a woman screaming. It was Trisha's mother, Diane, who'd been at work when she'd been called to come home. And Officer Salahovich saw her running towards Trisha's body, and he had to basically tackle her to the ground to stop her from seeing Trisha. He didn't want her to remember her daughter like that. Cook County homicide detectives Jack Reed and Mark Baldwin quickly took over the scene, and they started collecting DNA samples from everyone who knew Trisha. This included a friend of her brother, Doug's, who lived just down the street from the Picaccios, a friend named Michael Gargiulo. Yeah, because how old is he at this point? 18, 19? Yeah. Mm-hmm. After Trisha's murder, there was really nothing susp- – and so, okay, this is very interesting to me, this part, because when I say there's nothing suspicious about Michael's behavior, that is according to Trisha's dad and her brother, Doug. And like they're friends, like they had they had their little friend group. He seemed to have a normal reaction to her murder. He seemed just as shocked as all of Doug's other friends at the news. And to Rick and Diane Picaccio, he had never shown any aggressive or violent behavior. He'd always been very quiet. But Doug told a different story. He said in the ninth grade that Michael had beat the hell out of a boy with learning disabilities, completely out of the blue, just for the fun of it laughing as he ran away afterwards. Ew. He had several incidents like this, just attacking other students at random. Doug said he'd take swings at his dad, and once he smashed a table over his sister Melissa's head during an argument. But the Picaccios don't seem to realize this side of Michael. They didn't think much about him until a year after Trisha's murder, when he first brought Diane Picaccio flowers. It was like live greenery. Then it was a lily at Easter. And then he brought the Picaccios a gift certificate for a restaurant. And then he bought Rick a shirt. And they. Wait. <laughs> yeah, he just starts bringing like little gifts to the family. But they kind of feel random. Yeah, they're like, why is Michael giving them all this stuff? No one else around is like bringing gifts. I'm sure they probably had like a meal train organized or something, but like a shirt? That's, I'm sorry, your daughter was murdered. Here's a shirt. It seemed weird. And so they mentioned it to detectives. 
So detectives Reed and Baldwin, they start looking more closely at Michael Gargiulo, and they realized that he had a criminal record for theft, but really nothing else. But when they went to talk to Michael, he pointed them in the direction of another suspect, another kid from the neighborhood named Eric Agazim, Agazim, Eric, who was also a close friend of Doug and Michael's. And he told detectives that the morning after the murder, Eric had come to his house asking him to hide a gym bag for him. Michael said he didn't know what was in it, but he left detectives with the impression that he knew that there had been a knife in the bag. And he was totally playing them, and it kind of mm-hmm. worked. When Eric refused to talk to them, they grew even more suspicious of him, but they'd never been able to get any actual evidence against him or Michael, and the case just went cold. Five years later, Michael showed up at the Picaccio's house insisting that he speak with Rick. Trisha's father. Diane told him that Rick was at work and Michael asked to wait there for him. He sat at the kitchen table and waited for over an hour. And when Rick got home, Michael had this look on his face like he was going to say something to him. But just then, Michael's father and one of his sisters came in and said, we have to leave, Michael. And they like whisked him out of there. And soon after, Michael moved to L.A. and detectives in Chicago were never able to make a case against him. Detective Small saw so many similarities in the murders of Trisha and Ashley. Both women were young, beautiful, small. They'd both been stabbed repeatedly. And according to Detective Small, both had their bodies posed for shock value. It was never clear to me how Trisha's body had supposedly been posed. And I tried Googling it, and it doesn't seem like anybody else but Detective Small ever mentioned the posing aspect. So I'm not really sure about that. But it definitely seemed like there was a connection between these murders. Between the bodies, yeah. And then the detectives tell him, we've got DNA from the victim, from Trisha's fingernails, and it matches Michael Gargiulo. (gasps) And Detective Small is like, what? How did you not arrest him five years ago? Like, why is he not in jail? Yeah. And they tell him because the Cook County DA's office had refused to file charges. How? This other girl would be alive. What's her name? Ashley Ellerin. Ashley would be alive. I know. They said that a DNA match was not enough evidence since there was a reasonable answer to why Michael's DNA could have been found there. He was friends with Trisha's brother. He'd been to the house. He knew the family. The DNA could have gotten there another time. But the real problem was with how the DNA had been collected. The crime lab had used a single swab to collect all of the DNA from Trisha's fingernails. So it was impossible to say where Michael's DNA had come from. That doesn't make any sense. Why would you just, that's like using a dirty Q-tip for the next year. Right. I don't understand. Do people do that? You're not supposed to. You're supposed (laughs) to use a different swab, but they did not follow procedure. And so... Underneath her fingertip, if the DNA had been found underneath her fingernails, that would point toward an attack. But on top of her nail, it could have been an innocent contact when he was over at the house. And because they used the same swab for both, they couldn't tell you which was his DNA. I don't understand how we're making these mistakes. Like if I am working a crime scene and I'm getting DNA, uh, the technique is not optional. I, I just feel like there's some standard operating procedures. That have to be followed. hmm Yeah, or this stuff happens. Right. Yeah, and, and then, like, literally more people get murdered. Yeah. 
Ugh. This was so frustrating to Detective Small, who was convinced at this point that Mike Gargiulo was his man that had killed Ashley, and that if he wasn't stopped, he was going to kill again. Yeah, he already did. Right. But like now again. Right. And all he had in L.A. was a small circumstantial case. Like he lives down the street and he's a creepy weirdo. Like that's all I got on him. Yeah. And the D.A. in L.A. wasn't interested in that either. This was a person that killed by inflicting as much pain and damage on a person as possible. This was someone that liked it and would do it again. Yeah. So Detective Small teamed up with these detectives from Chicago to find Mike. They discovered that Mike had been a boxer, so he was definitely strong enough to do it. He was left-handed, and he had anger issues. He'd once thrown his dad through a glass window. He'd broken a table over his sister's back. In high school, he'd handcuffed his girlfriend and raped her. He was involved in car thefts and beatings, and he was never charged with any of this stuff. When Mike first moved to Hollywood, he'd wanted to become an actor. But in the meantime, he'd become a bouncer at the Rainbow Room, but he was quickly fired after he got into a fight with a customer. So he then got into the air conditioning repair business, which like goes inside people's homes, you know, just where he should yeah. be. Detective Small had managed to track Michael to an apartment off Wilshire Boulevard, but they couldn't actually find him. Neighbors confirmed that they'd seen him around, like sometimes sleeping in his van or just wandering down the street. He turned out to be really difficult to find. But while they're searching for him, they get a warrant so they can get into his apartment and get a DNA sample. Inside, his apartment was weird. And <laughs> the only place that I found this information was in the episode of the People Magazine Investigates. I couldn't find this anywhere else. And I've never found an explanation. But in his bedroom, there oh, was good. no bed, but there was... 150 figurines of Dr. Giggles, who was a murderous doctor in a like cult classic no. horror movie mm -hmm. from 1992. No, we're not doing this. And no. they were all still in the plastic boxes. Couldn't find any other information what he planned to do with them. Like, I'm assuming he was selling them on eBay or something, but I could only find one Dr. Giggles action figure listed on eBay. It was going for like 70 bucks. So I guess if you've got 150 of them and you find 150 people that really want to pay no, 70 but, bucks. What, you could buy a mattress <laughs> for your bedroom? <laughs> Maybe then you could buy a bed. They also found a <laughs> duffel bag. If only we had a, a mattress coupon code. <laughs> Peepers. I would not give it to him. Yeah, I would not give you a discount. Mm -mm. You pay full price. I wouldn't even sell you one. <laughs> you can sleep on the floor. Your money's not good here. <laughs> they also found a duffel bag, and inside was a clear plastic mask that would, like, distort your features when you wear it. Yeah. And then Mike came home while yeah. they were while searching there. his yes. apartment. <laughs> he saw the so officers great. and was really surprised, and he, like, tried to fight past them. It took oh. four officers to get him down. Is he, like, a big dude? He's like six foot, 190 pounds. I mean, he's not like huge, but he's not small. Yeah. He's kind of lean, but strong. Yeah. And tall. Okay. They had a warrant for his DNA, so they were able to get a sample. But none of the items could be linked to Ashley Ellerin, and there was nothing else connecting to him to her because they didn't have DNA from her scene. 
So or we're just her gonna body. let all those dolls, those figurines slide. <laughs> we don't think that that's. <laughs> I don't think you can arrest somebody for having 150 Doctor Giggles. <laughs> Watch me. I'm fine. <laughs> I don't know. Ugh. So while they waited for the DNA to come back, they had to let him go. They just didn't have anything to keep him on. All this time, her family was just waiting for answers from a detective hundreds of miles away, and they were getting frustrated at the lack of answers. Detective Small said he couldn't blame them, and if it had been his daughter, he'd have been standing at someone's desk demanding answers. Yeah. Years went by with no movement in this case until... 2008, seven <gasps> years after Ashley's murder, when he struck again. So, but up until then, they they didn't know where he was or they just knew Mm-mm. he was there and they couldn't arrest him. Yeah, they couldn't arrest him. So now he, okay, so now he's killed someone else. So 26-year-old Michelle Murphy was living in an apartment in Santa Monica. She was small, like five feet tall, but she was very athletic. Working out was just part of her routine. And she was very strong. Yes, yeah, same. On the, n- <laughs> on the <gasps> night. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> on the night of April 28th, 2008, Michelle went to bed around 1030. She liked to sleep with her windows open just a few inches. But that night, she woke up in the middle of the night because of a throbbing pain in her arm to find a man in a hoodie straddling her stabbing her in the right arm, chest, and shoulder. Oh, my gosh. And little five-foot-tall Michelle was like, nope. And she decided to fight back. And she fought with everything she had. She grabbed the blade of the knife, causing several wounds to both of her hands. And she was able to kick him off of her, causing him to fall off of her. And his fall caused a loud thud, which was heard by her neighbors downstairs. And the man just took off running out of her apartment. But before he leaves, he turns around and says, I'm sorry. And then, like, runs away. I'm sorry? I'm sorry. Uh, no, thank you. Do not accept your apology. No, what? And she had, she had some serious knife wounds. She was taken to the hospital to be treated. All of her wounds required surgery. But she survived and i think she just made a full recovery oh my god but she never returned to that apartment and she slept with the lights on for a long time after that and probably the windows closed yes and i'm sure the windows closed she told detectives that she didn't know her attacker and it looked like just a random act of violence she did have some helpful information for them though she knew the attacker had been using his left hand to stab her so Mm. now we know for sure he's left-handed Who's left-handed? Michael Gargiulo. Also like 10% of the population, but it narrows it down. Yeah. And she'd also gotten a chunk out of him, and he'd left blood behind. And 25 (gasps) days after that sample was sent to the lab, they got a hit. It was a match to Michael Gargiulo. Okay, let's lock this man up. (laughs) So once they identified Mike, they started profiling him. The Santa Monica detectives discover that not only was he connected to Trisha's murders, being a friend of her brother's and a neighbor down the street, but he was also a suspect in Ashley Ellerin's murder. He also lived down the street from Ashley. So now detectives are wondering, are there other victims out there that we don't know about? 
And that led them to an unsolved case from 2005. Oh, wait. We're doing – this is a serial killer. You said that at the beginning. Oh, mother. <laughs> from 2005 in El Monte, a city in Los Angeles County on the west side of L.A. It's near West Covina, California for all my oh, crazy yeah. ex-girlfriend fans, of which you are not, but it's the best show ever. This unsolved case was the murder of a woman named Maria Bruno. She was small, attractive, 32 years old, and she had four kids, a five-year-old, a four-year-old, and two-year-old twins. Four kids under six. Yeah, well, that is something else. But I know that doesn't seem like his type. But if anyone can catch this guy, it's somebody with four kids because they're not getting away with shit. Well, she'd come to the U.S. as a kid for, well, this is a cold case murder from 2005. Right. It was the murder of her. She'd come to the U.S. as a kid from El Salvador and married her husband young. But recently, she and her husband had been having marital problems, and she'd recently moved into an apartment in El Monte while her husband retained custody of their kids. And she'd chosen this particular apartment because of the security. You had to have either a passcode or a key to get through the front door of the building, and she liked that. So on December 1st of 2005, she and her husband went to dinner to, like, talk things out about their relationship, and afterwards, he dropped her off at her apartment and left. She'd only been living in that apartment for 10 days. Mm. The next morning, her husband arrived at her apartment to take her to work and found a horrible scene. Maria's throat was gashed. She'd been stabbed many times. She'd also been posed. It looked exactly like the scene from Trisha and Ashley's murder. There were even signs that the killer was left-handed. Detectives found that a screen had been removed from a, a ground floor kitchen window. He had taken a knife from Maria's own kitchen and went into her bedroom while she slept. The detective in charge of her case said that the violence on her was phenomenal. He had just mutilated her body. And he said that that's very rare in real life. Before this case, he'd only ever seen it in the movies. But the case went unsolved. You know, the overkill in this seemed so personal, and Maria didn't have any enemies that they could find. Detectives eliminated burglary, robbery, and sexual assault as a motive. So what did that leave them with? It started looking like she'd been killed just to be killed. Right. Outside of her apartment, investigators found one of those like blue booties doctors wear during surgery. Oh, It yeah. had a single drop of blood on the sole. DNA testing would prove that it was Maria's blood and they found no other evidence. And that might, you know, explain why we're not finding DNA at any of these crime scenes because he's wearing like blue booties okay that freaks me out because like people when they come into your house like maintenance people or mm -hmm. like when the at&t guy comes they put those on yeah but not to murder like, no, thank you, you so that they don't mess up your house i know <laughs> but i'm like hey take those off i want your dna just rub let his, me see your credentials just get a sample just get a little swab and uh keep them in a in a fridge and yeah. so if you're murdered, the police will know where to, where to look for their DNA sample. That's a great idea, actually. We just have everything, like, categorized. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I would love that. It's color-coded. It's nobody's, dated. Nobody's returning to murder the girl that got their DNA swab from their cheek. Yeah. But they found no other evidence at Maria's apartment. Nothing. 
Three years later, after the attack on Michelle, where she survived, police are now connecting the dots between all of these murders. Detectives looked into all of the residents at Maria's apartment complex, and guess whose name they see on the list of residents? Uh, I already know. Michael Gargiulo. He doesn't go very far. Also, how pissed are you if you're Michelle and you find out, I don't know if she knows, that he's murdered all these other people and he's, like, not in prison and you just got, like, stabbed up? Right. But, like, apart from them not swabbing Trisha Picaccio's fingernails correctly, they're just, he just wasn't leaving evidence behind at the scene. Like, yeah. But now he left a live witness and a booty. <laughs> this apartment complex was set up so that it like went around a pool in the middle of the complex and the yes. units all circled it. Maria lived on the first floor on one side of the pool. And on the other side of the pool was Michael on the second floor. Like he had a direct line of sight to her apartment. He could see like directly to her front door. He could see both her living room window and her kitchen window. So he definitely knew she was there by herself. Like he's able to see that like no one else is. Yep. Detectives went back to the complex and searched the unit where Michael Gargiulo used to live. And the place was totally clean. But in the attic, they found another blue medical booty, identical to the one they'd found outside her apartment at the time. How is he leaving stuff around? And why in the attic? And that's all you left was one little booty? And there was DNA yeah. on the booty that matched Dummy. Michael. Mm-hmm. Detectives brought Michelle back in for a photographic lineup to see if she recognized Michael. And she did. There was an really? alley behind her building that was shared with the building behind her. And at the time of Michelle's attack, he lived in that building right behind her. So it was the exact same thing over and over and over again. Michael moves into a new area. He picks out a target, a small, attractive young woman. Scopes out the place, goes to the parties. Yes. Looks in the window, peeping in your windows, peeping in your, snatching your people up. Watching them. All that. Stalking them, preparing, and then he attacks. Michael Gargiulo is a textbook serial killer. Scum of the earth scum of the earth. That's what we're going to call him because, you know, the media came up with all sorts of really cool little nicknames for him that I refuse to repeat. Maybe I'll title this scum of the earth. (laughs) Yeah, I'm fine with that. Michelle picks out Michael from the photo lineup and now they have to find him. So they put his apartment under surveillance and a few days later on June 6th, 2008, the surveillance team see him leaving his apartment and they follow him to a drugstore down the street And in the parking lot, they arrested him for the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy. And police sergeant Richard Lewis told him that he was being arrested for attempted murder. And his response was, which agency is this? Which told Lewis that he wasn't sure which crime he was getting charged for. Ah, what a weird thing to say. I agree. Detective Small was so relieved that Michael was now somewhere where he could not hurt anyone else, but he wanted to get him on these murder charges, not just the attempted murder. Right. Finally, with the evidence of the blue booties, the proximity connection in all of these cases, they were able to submit their case to the DA, who decided that there was sufficient evidence to charge him. So, on September 4th, 2008, he was charged with the murders of Maria Bruno and Ashley Ellerin. Still not Trisha Picaccio yet. 
But as early as his pretrial hearings in 2008, Michael started up with the antics. At one point, he tried to escape. He would throw. Yes, he would throw tantrums. And he delayed his trial for years and years and years and years and years because he kept firing and rehiring his lawyers and just causing problems. He didn't go to trial until 11 years after his arrest. Not until May of 2019. He really is scum of the earth. Yes. His trial began in Los Angeles in May of 2019. I can't believe they can let you do that. Like, you can just keep firing and rehiring, and they're not just like, nope, you've got to do it with. I think a lot of times judges do call shenanigans on that, and they're like, no, no, you can't do this. And he was facing the death penalty. There wasn't a lot of physical evidence linking Michael to the crime, but all four of these, well, three, they're talking about these three victims, but including even Trisha, they all lived feet from him. Feet. Maria and Michelle lived like a hundred feet from Michael's front door. And oh. Ashley and Tri and they both lived in apartments, you know. And Ashley and Trisha, who both lived in houses, they lived like five hundred feet from him. I mean, very close. I'm about to go knock on my neighbor's door and be like, I need to know everything about you right now. Right, I know. I think about that too. I'm like, who do you got in your basement? Ooh. Seventy witnesses testified during this trial, including Ashton Kutcher, who testified about this in 2019, and I had no idea. No idea. What would he testify? He testified about going to pick Ashley up for that date and seeing what he thought was spilled wine on the floor, but was actually Mm. blood. Is there like a video of him testifying? No, there are pictures, though. He has a little Uh. mustache, Mm. and he's wearing a very nice suit. But no videos that I could find. I tried to find some. There's just like news clips talking about it and they just show pictures. They like look like it's going to be a video and then you click Mm -hmm. on it and it's just like a news segment and then they just show pictures and that got annoying. Another witness at the trial was a woman named Yadira Reyes who had been found during the investigation. Detectives had found pictures of her and Michael Gargiulo kissing in a park. And by that time, they knew that he was a serial killer. And so they were really worried about this woman in this picture that maybe she could be another victim. So they wanted to find her, see if she was okay. They plastered her picture all over the news, asking her to come forward, hoping that she wasn't another victim. But it turned out that she was a victim of his, though like Michelle Murphy, she'd lived to tell the tale. When she entered the courtroom, she was so terrified of Michael, that police officers stood shoulder to shoulder so they would form a wall between her and Michael so that she wouldn't have to look at him. And she kept her head down as she walked to the witness stand where she spoke through a Spanish interpreter. She didn't speak much English. And she said that she had dated Michael Gargiulo for about six months. And when he refused to introduce her to his family or even to show her where he lived, she started suspecting that he was like married or something like this guy's hiding mm-hmm. something, you know. And she said that the last time that she saw Michael, they got in a huge fight over him not introducing her to his family. And he got so mad that he started hitting her. He threw her in the back of his parked van and raped her. And afterwards, he drove her home and threatened to kill her family if she said anything. And she said that she never reported it because she felt so ashamed and I'm sure scared also. Yeah. After she left the stand, Gargiulo, like you, they said that you could see him turn to his attorney and say, she's effing lying. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Michelle Murphy also took the stand, and she turned out to be the most important witness in this whole case. She was able to testify, to speak for herself, and to tell her own story, something that Uh Ashley, Trisha, and Maria were unable to do. She fought off her attacker, and she lived to tell the tale, which included pointing at Michael and telling the court that that was the man who had attacked her. And because of the similarities of all these crimes and Michael's proximity to every victim at the time of their murder, even though they didn't live close to each other, you know, Maria's in El Monte, which is over out in West Covina, out in like the middle of nowhere. Then Ashley's in Hollywood and Michelle is in Santa Monica. And then Trisha's in Chicago. You know, I mean, they're not like close by. Dr. Vian, I think, Castellano testified on behalf of Michael. She was a psychologist. And her testimony was incredibly confusing for me. It seemed to come out of absolutely nowhere. I'd never heard any of this stuff before. And then I was like reading these recaps of the trial. And I found this information. And I was like, whoa. So... She testifies that she had diagnosed Michael with dissociative identity disorder, which used to be referred to as multiple personality disorder, and that while attacking his victims, if he did actually uh, commit these murders, he may have gone into a fugue state during the attacks, just completely unaware of what he was doing. She testified to some just abhorrent, extreme child abuse. She said that Mike, like when he was a kid, she said that Michael would be tied up and left in a closet without food or water for up to three days when he was eight. That his parents but how would. Is, like, how do you prove that? If his parents, I mean. They said that his parents would hold his hands over a hot stove. I mean, other things that are just even too terrible to repeat. I couldn't figure out where these stories were coming from. If it was all coming from Michael or if she had spoken with his family and if she had corroborated any of this information. Because he's known for making up stories. And I'm telling you, like there are stories like a child called it. That's like one of the worst stories of child abuse of all time. It seems like he just pulled stuff from that book. You know, I mean, these are like so extreme. And Trisha's family and Doug, his friend, is saying that he used to hit his father. And he smashed a table over his sister. You know, those are things that they saw happen. So I'm not really sure. Like, they definitely painted him as the aggressor. But I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. I think it only matters in a, like, can we as adults please stop ruining children who will then grow up to be the adults and possibly do these horrific things? Like, if we could stop doing that, maybe this stuff would not happen anymore. This is our responsibility, but at the end of the day, it's it's his responsibility too. And I just don't know how much of this. Is, I just don't know. I don't know. I, don't I just know always feel like if they call a witness, that like there has to be some because the jury takes that as like, oh, here's a psychologist testifying, or here's like, and I think it has to be corroborated. Like there has to be some. I don't know. I just feel like anyone could get up there. No, I mean you're just giving your testimony, and she's saying like I like. But yeah, I would think that as a juror, I would think that if this psychologist is saying that he suffered all of this horrific abuse, that it really did happen. But then I don't know, because maybe they were putting on other witnesses. I mean, they had 70 witnesses. I could not read through all of them. There wasn't coverage of all of the witnesses. So I don't know Uh everything that we said. This is the only witness I know of that talked about this abuse. Now, maybe they got their sister, his sister up to also talk about some of it. I 
I have no idea. If if they did, mm-hmm. maybe there's something to it. But if not, it seems like I don't know. It just seems convenient is not really the word I want to use. But like the things that he was talking about were so I'm not going to tell you because I don't want you to think about it, but were just so terrible that you just only like it's the most extreme cases that you've ever heard of that you've ever heard of. And I'm not saying it doesn't ever happen, but it is the most it's like the kind that makes the news, the kind that I just like mm, Michael Gargiulo was convicted on all counts. And seven days later, a jury deemed him sane, which meant that he was facing life or death. And the jury was pushing for the death penalty. But again, this is California, you know, so. During the sentencing phase, Ashley's parents were able to give a victim impact statement and confront Mm -hmm. Michael. Cynthia Ellerin talked about how she ached for her daughter to hear her voice. Mike Ellerin talked about how it broke their family, how his wife never recovered, how his son had been affected by the murder of his sister. Getting justice for a murder victim doesn't seem to ever really give anyone closure. You know, it doesn't like make anybody feel better. But I think Ashley's childhood friend really said it best. She said, it's so important that people realize that Ashley and, and all these other women were much more than someone who knew Ashton Kutcher or who were a victim of a serial killer. You know, these were complex and vibrant and very loved young women. You know, people that never got a chance to really live their lives. Ashley and Trisha, they never got to have a career or a family or a home. All because some asshat took it away. I added the asshat part. You know, she her childhood friend didn't say that, but. I liked the added color. But they just, yeah, they were so young and there was so much, I mean. Going to fashion school and living in Hollywood and like 18, about to go off to college at Purdue to be an engineer. Like, mm-hmm. you just have such, so much time. I know. In July of 2021, Michael was finally sentenced and he got the death penalty. And so he'll, you know, be in prison for the rest of his life where he belongs. However long that might be. It's California. So more than likely won't be executed, which is fine. <sighs> you know, he can just rot in jail. And then in July of 2011, he was charged with the murder of Trisha Picaccio. And they were kind of waiting for these trials to be over. And they're expecting to extradite him to Illinois to face trial for her. But he has not, uh, as far as I know, he has, that trial has not begun. Right. And, you know, that's (sighs) the murders of Ashley Ellerin, Maria Bruno, Trisha Picaccio, and the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy. And who was the other woman that he dated? Ugh, Yadira. Oh, I hate this person. Yeah, he's really the earth. terrible. I mean, yeah. And uh, something that I kept forgetting to put into the script, he said something about, at some point, he said something like, just because there's 10 bodies doesn't mean I killed them all or something. So oh. they're thinking that, There's even more victims that they just never found. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure because it's so hard to connect it all when it's in different places too. Right. Yeah. There's got to be other victims. And maybe he didn't live close to those ones. And so they're like, then there's really nothing tying him to them, you know, because he doesn't leave the DNA behind. I can't imagine being a parent and losing your kid in this way. 
my mom was all worried I was like, you know, going to get like knocked up and pregnant. I'm like, you should have been, I mean, this is stuff mm-hmm. you, like when you have a, a daughter, like I just, I'm not saying things don't happen to men, but I just, you know, mm-hmm. this like kidnap abduction, this fear. And I just don't think sometimes that people realize that women are conditioned, like we live in fear. I told you I had this whole conversation with, you know, mm-hmm. Sweet Russell, who is so great to me, but like, did you know, we first we're together, he didn't realize, like, oh, yeah, like, walking the dog at night, or, oh, yeah, like, I mean, because he's in literally not had to think, and I mean, he has sisters, but, like, do you know what I mean? Like, when you it's just It's different when you have, have to think to about it for like yourself, that. yeah. Right. Oh. You're not trained to keep your key in between your fingers. Between your fingers. Which now I hear that that doesn't work, that it'll get, it'll get smushed this way, and it won't even help, so. Yeah. Don't do that. Great. Well, I got to go walk the dog now. (laughs) Before Mm. that, do we have any shout outs? Maybe. (laughs) Let me check. All right. How do you, while you check, I'm going to tell the people how they can get a shout out. Well, you do that. All right. If you boss them around, if you would like a shout out on the podcast, you just head on over to patreon.com slash true crime creepers. Sign up for any level. We'll get you a shout out. And uh, there's a form to fill out. I've recently reposted it, so you can find it over there. You can also find it, like, on the website under the tags. The app is dumb. It doesn't, like, use the tags, which is annoying, but the website does. All right. So are you kicking us off? Yeah, I sure will. Excellent. These people, you're famous adjacent, adjacent. Wait, Chris and I actually had a conversation about when we'd become famous. Uh Oh, we we think you all should be clued in first. Mm-hmm. Right now, you're famous adjacent adjacent. Right. But we have because decided. Because we are famous adjacent. We are not We famous. are famous adjacent. But we decided but. how we'll know when we're famous. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about this. We'll know we're famous when someone comes up to us and recognizes one of us in public. Uh-huh. Not someone we know, obviously. Or connected through someone else that we know. Sure. Total stranger. So. <laughs> Yeah, just sees us out in the wild. And I'm like, oh my God, is that Kristen and Mogan? And I'm like, okay. And when that happens, th- there's going to be a whole mini creep on it, I'm sure. And you'll be bumped up to famous adjacent status. Then we'll probably have some t shirt. We'll probably have some famous adjacent merch. All right. First famous adjacent adjacent is Aaliyah Koblenz. Pronounced like a singer, but not named after her. Oh, Aaliyah, R.I.P. Was that Aaliyah? I always get Aaliyah mixed. Oh, Ashanti. No, Aaliyah. Aaliyah. Yeah. R.I.P. I was thinking Alicia, and I was like, she's not dead. <laughs> Alicia Keys? Yeah. Fair. Next up. Next up is Holly Hug. And Hug oh. isn't. What? What? You don't think we're going to talk about Holly Hug's whole life? Holly Hug's. Like, I want to give you a hug. <laughs> what does CBC mean? Consonant, vowel consonant. Oh. Duh. So I've been out of the teaching game. All right, Mogap, hey, Holly, Holly Hug. hug. <laughs> Did you star in a Hallmark Christmas movie? <gasps> Are you the main character from a Hallmark Christmas Holly movie? Hug is wh- Holly I, Hug is why was I picturing family. like bundled yeah. up in a scarf, yes. hold, like a little cap, knit cap, yeah. holding Walking a Walking through the Christmas tree farm Holly Hug, do you live just in, inherited. Do you live in Vermont? <laughs> Holly Hug. Yeah. If mm-hmm. not, have, have you been there and- uh, if not, you should go there and you should get a coffee and then you should just walk real quick around corners, hoping that you just bump yeah. into some handsome 
businessman mm-hmm. that's in town to take over said Christmas tree farm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Holly Hug, is that how you met your husband? Let us know, girl. <laughs> Next up is Sierra Margo Margolis. Margotless. Margolis. Margo like Margo, right? That's why you're spelled, but it's Margot yeah. in the pronoun. Margo Sierra Margolis. That makes me it sound I wanna say I wanna say marvelous. I wanna say miraculous, which I think is Wednesday in Spanish. (laughs) Is it? But I don't think you're saying it. I think it's like miraculous. Look, I took three years of Spanish (laughs) and here we are. All right, you're up next. Lo siento. (laughs) Erica. Erica, you go, Erica. And up next. Oscar Ferrer. Man, these are hard tonight. I know. Oscar Ferrer. Thank you so much. You guys are Oscar awesome. Oscar Ferrari. Oscar Ferrari. Y'all are awesome. If Wait. You- I what? want you to try the next one, too. This one seems hard. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. No. Never mind. It's not as hard. Virgilian Gleckler. Virgilian Gleckler. Virgilian. What a beautiful name. Virgilian. I know. I love it. Virgilian, you sound like there's a piece of very fine, expensive jewelry that you're named after. Oh, uh, so expensive that I've never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Introducing Virgilian. the Virgilian, timeless, elegant, say you love her with Virgilian. Doesn't that sound like a real? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, okay, great. All right. We're marketing geniuses now also. We really do need to put all of our predictions <laughs> together that we've guessed it people nobody is telling us if we're right or wrong they probably hate it well i think maddie tucker is too cool for us still not her from her yeah so well disappointing thank all of you you're famous adjacent adjacent now we love you we love you so much and thank you all so much for listening we so appreciate you if you want, you can find us on social media. We are at Creepers Pod on Instagram and sometimes on Twitter once a month. We She already did the September tweet, so it'll be a while before, oh, before we get the October tweeted. But you can also join our Facebook group that's growing. It's been so much fun in there. That is the... We're tr- about to hit a thousand people in there. What? <laughs> that's amazing. I know. Can you believe it? The True Crime Creepers discussion group. Come in there. Post your true crime... Your waffle sounds house. like a lot, but it feels feels like a tight knit community, you know. It really does. It really does. And yeah, and definitely subscribe to the podcast so you can hear our next episode right when it drops. When I'll tell Mogab another wild story. Yeah, and also leave us some more five star ratings and reviews. We've we've been loving getting the five star ratings, but we miss reading your reviews. They were always so fun. So hit us up. Okay. Bye, peeps and creeps. <laughs>